Holy Father, we pray that you would take from us at this time all desire to be clever or to be entertained. We pray that you would send your spirit among us that we might hope only to hear your word and your truth. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are few things that define us more than the way we dine. That's why we hold on so dearly to our Thanksgiving dinner celebrations and traditions, to our Fourth of, Bo- Fourth of July barbecues and our romantic candlelight dinners. That the way we celebrate meals is a way of shaping our identity and of declaring who we are. If your idea of a good celebration is a hog roast at the beach rather than a banquet with cloth napkins, crystal goblets, and six forks that you don't know what to do with, that probably says something about your personality or your sense of identity. Today's gospel story is one of those many gospel stories about eating. The feeding of the 5,000, as we know it, is one of the few stories that occurs in all four gospels. And that says something about how important this story was to the identity of the early church. This account of Jesus feeding the multitude was regularly read at communion by the early church because it gave them a profound sense that God was providing for them, that God was sustaining them, that they were God's people, members of his family, because they had been accepted at God's table. And Jesus promised to continue to provide for them. This was a reminder that they were God's covenant people. For just as God had provided manna in the desert for the people of Israel, Jesus is now miraculously providing fish and bread for his people in the wilderness. But the story of Jesus has an improvement on the story of of the people of Israel. Because Jesus is more than a new Moses. He's more than the person who delivers his people from bondage. But he's also the one who provides the bread from heaven. Jesus is greater than Moses. And so this miracle really identifies Jesus for who he really is. Something is revealed about Jesus' personality. That Jesus has visually connected himself by this miracle to the God who poured out manna from heaven, to the God who sustains his people by providing daily bread. By nature of being modern people, I think even Christians have a tendency to think about nature as a mechanical, mindless operation in which God might occasionally intrude with a miracle. But the Jews believe that God is always at work in nature, that God is the God of nature. He is the one who made the world, and he is the one who continues to guide and direct it and provide for it. God is not an interloper in the natural world. God is the one who daily provides every good thing in season. 
Everything in creation comes from the hand of God. Every drop of rain, every seed that sprouts and blossoms, every fish that swims upstream to spawn is an active part of God's provision for his created world. Whenever Jews shared a meal, the standard mealtime prayer recognized the hand of God in everything that they received. Blessed are you, Lord God, creator of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. God is the provider. He's the one who, in nature, makes fish out of more fish, or more fish out of fish. He's the one who multiplies grain in the fields. He's the one who guides the process of bread rising in the oven and wine fermenting in the wineskins. All of these natural processes of reproduction were not simply seen as mechanical nature running its course. They're seen as the hand of God at work, things that we are supposed to give thanks to God for because we recognize his goodness in providing for us. And so the miracle in this story is not simply that God multiplies fish and bread. Because according to good Jewish theology, God does that all the time. It just usually takes time. Every loaf of bread that you break has yeast in it that was multiplied by the hand of God, providentially, through nature. Every fish that you've ever met, or et, was spawned and reproduced through the guidance of God. This is good biblical theology. So the surprise of this miracle isn't that God provides fish and bread, multiplies loaves and fish, uh, or that God is somehow working in creation now when he usually doesn't. The miracle in this story is that the God who is always at work in nature is now standing in flesh and blood in front of you. What usually takes years or months happens in a moment at the hands of Jesus. And so this is a sign to God's people. The creator and provider of the universe is now standing in front of you in the form of a carpenter from Nazareth. Think about it. When Jesus multiplies loaves and fishes, when Jesus turns water into wine, he's doing in shorthand what God always does in nature. God is always at work multiplying loaves and fishes. Only now he's doing it in an instant. And this dinner, this provision from God, is not just a reminder of how God provides for his people. It's not just a reminder of how God has provided manna in the desert. But it's also a reminder that something new is happening. The prophets promised a day when God's kingdom would come and we would celebrate it in a great banquet. And Jesus is beginning the fulfillment of that promise. That prophecy is begun by feeding these people in the desert. And so this simple meal of bread and fish provided from the hand of God through the hands of this carpenter from Nazareth is a foretaste of what is yet to come. This is the appetizer. This is hors d'oeuvres for the kingdom banquet. It's just whetting your appetite for what God has in store for you. Now, I find it interesting that Matthew chapter 14 actually records two different dinners. That's why we had those two stories back to back that didn't seem to have much to do with each other. Two different kingdom banquets, and in fact, 
two different kings. But that's where the similarity ends between these stories. Herod Antipas is the son of the other Herod. You remember him. He tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. He is tetrarch over Judea. That is, he's a Jewish king, but really he's a figurehead. He's appointed by Caesar as a kind of puppet king to appease the Jews. And so Herod Antipas is a sellout to Caesar. He is aligned with the kingdom of Caesar, with Rome. And Herod, for this sellout, has the opportunity to live a life of lavish opulence, of luxury and self-indulgence. And, and finally, the, it gets so, his head gets so big that he finally divorces his wife. She's not in the right class for him in order to marry Herodias. Now, Herodias happens to be both his niece and his brother's wife. It gets confusing. It's a soap opera. John the Baptist was quite vocal about this, as a good prophet would be. He's vocal about the immorality of Herod's relationship, and this earned for John the resentment of Herod's wife. So here we are at Herod's birthday celebration. His wife sends out her daughter, Salome, the, the half-daughter, uh, or the, the stepdaughter of Herod. He, she sends her daughter out to perform a seductive dance for the king and his party guests. Now, according to Josephus, Salome is 12 or 13 years old. The guests were quite pleased at this exhibition. And so the drunken stepfather promises anything to this girl for her dance. And so Salome extends her mother's request. She wants John the, John the Baptist's head on a platter as part of the celebration. And the prophet is summarily ex uh, executed in prison, and his head is brought to the table. Now that is one version of a royal banquet. The rich and famous get together to drink themselves into a stupor. A teenage girl is manipulated and abused. And finally, the whole thing ends in bloodshed as a prophet of God is beheaded. Let's be frank. This is politics as usual. This is the kind of kingdoms, this is the kind of kingdom that we're accustomed to. It's the kind of kingdom that we see in the newspaper every day. When we turn on the news, we see this kind of kingdom working its way out. Kingdoms of self-indulgence, kingdoms of corruption and abuse, kingdoms of violence and bloodshed. In fact, we're so accustomed to this kind of political power, we seldom even flinch when we see it anymore. G.K. Chesterton wrote... When the world rebels against the golden rule of Christianity, it finds itself helpless under the brazen rule of commerce and the iron rule of war. King Herod's banquet, his birthday celebration, is politics as usual. In short, it's an indulgent, drunken orgy of immoral and power-hungry demagogues pretty much what we've come to expect in politics. The motivation for this feast 
is really to advance Herod's own kingdom, to advance his political cause, and to bask in all the pleasures that corrupt money and power can buy. This is the way things are. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but he comes away as Mr. Clinton or Mr. Nixon. But notice the contrast of the royal feast thrown by Jesus. First of all, where does it take place? Not in a royal palace, but out in a remote place in the wilderness. And what's the motivation for the feast? Not to satisfy the ambitions of a king or the immoral pleasures of an already overindulged figure, but simply to provide a meal of nourishment for people who are hungry and tired. Jesus' motivation in providing this meal is compassion, is grace. Now, Herod's banquet, no doubt, was catered with the richest of foods, the best of wines, and Jesus' banquet is pretty simple. It's the rustic food of peasants, dried fish and small barley loaves, the sort of thing you could carry in your pack for a day's journey. And this was a typical lunch for the poor. It's not lavish, but it's nourishing and filling for a small amount of people, that is. Herod's feast is driven by pride and carnality, but Jesus' feast is motivated by his compassion for the basic needs of the masses. Herod is thinking of himself. Jesus is thinking of others. That's the difference between these two kingdoms. The contrast between these two royal suppers could hardly be more dramatic or more instructive for us. I shudder to think how much time and energy are spent in Christian circles trying to reinvent the Christian vision along the lines of corporate power, politics as usual, accommodating the gospel to the ways of the world. But Jesus wants to teach his disciples that the kingdom of God comes on entirely different terms than the kingdoms of this world because they're based on an entirely different kind of power. Ultimately, it is the power of the cross, the power, power of sacrifice and humility and service. Now, the text is interesting because it says that Herod is distressed when he hears about the miracles because of Jesus' power. Now, this word is used of political power in the scripture. So Herod is threatened by Jesus' kingdom because it will ultimately mean the end of his power. It will mean the end of his way of life, of his kind of kingdom. Herod's kingdom and ultimately Caesar's kingdom may be able to offer a place at the table for heads of state, for celebrities, for important dignitaries, it may be able to offer the best of entertainment and the finest cuisine, but ultimately that feast will not satisfy human hunger because the only place it can lead is where it leads in this story, to human indignity and finally violence and bloodshed. Herod's banquet may seem like the best party in town, but in the end it only serves up abuse and death with a teenage girl manipulated for twisted adult pleasures, political agendas, and the head of a saint served up on a platter for the amusement of the partygoers. 
This is the ugly nature of any power outside the rule of God. The only way to maintain this kind of power is through more abuse and more bloodshed. And outside of God's grace, we know power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But the spread that Jesus offers is entirely unconventional and unexpected. It turns our ideas about power and kingdoms upside down. This supper may take place in a remote and desolate place where people are going hungry. But in the hands of Jesus, this wilderness becomes a place of quiet beauty and nourishment. Mark's account says that when Jesus saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And suddenly Jesus takes up the staff of shepherd and he begins to meet the needs of his flock. And this shepherd image is powerful and fitting because it's one of the important images in scripture of how God cares for his people. In fact, as we read this story, it seems very clear that the gospel writer wants us to think about the 23rd Psalm. Notice that Jesus instructs the the disciples to have the crowds lie down on the grass. Now, most English translations say sit down, but the Greek says literally recline. Does that remind you of something? The line from the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Jesus has them lie down on the grass, reclining in order to receive this meal. And so he's found this patch of green pasture in the desert. And he asks these people to to lie down to dine, which is the position of a formal banquet. It may look like a meager picnic, but Jesus intends to turn it into a kingdom banquet. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Now we call this the feeding of the 5,000. But if you look carefully and if we're accurate, we're really talking about Jesus feeding 10 to 15,000 people. Matthew says that there are 5,000 men not counting women and children. And so what we're counting here is households, not individuals. In other words, we have 5,000 families waiting for dinner. And we have a small amount of bread and a couple of fish. And at first, the disciples don't have eyes to see what Jesus is doing. They're in a panic because they look at this assembly of people in the wilderness, and it's their turn to feed them, to care for them. It's well past dinner time. In fact, Jesus presents the disciples, excuse me, Matthew presents the disciples as if they're trying to shrink from their responsibility to the crowd. They say, in essence, well, Lord, there's not much more we can do. You've preached a sermon, we sang a hymn, now they're hungry, so just send them home. Jesus' reply is emphatic. No, you give them something to eat. The responsibility is yours to feed them. You can't just say, be warmed and be filled, go in peace. The disciples reply, but Lord, it would take eight months, eight months' wages to feed these people. 
Do you really expect us to spend our money on this crowd? We only have five small barley loaves and two dried fish. That's not enough to feed the 12 of us. So Jesus has the disciples divide up the crowd into smaller communities, into manageable units, so they could be more easily served. He offers thanks to God for the bread, and he gives it to his disciples. Now, there are four words that are used here. Jesus took, he broke, he blessed, and he gave. Now, these words are used in every single biblical account of the Lord's Supper. When the early church heard this story, they were to be reminded of the way God provides for us in the Lord's Supper. In fact, there's one interesting note here. The Greek verb, he gave, is in a form that suggests that he kept on giving. In other words, every time the disciples ran out, there was more. Jesus kept on giving. Jesus seemed to have an inexhaustible supply of bread and fish. And that same verb is used, that same form of the verb is used in another another story after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. The two disciples who encountered Jesus after the resurrection, Jesus broke bread with them. And it says he kept on giving them bread. And then they recognized him. The kingdom of Herod may seem lavish and generous, but Herod's kingdom is really about taking taking the innocence of a young girl, taking the life of a prophet, and ultimately about stealing the soul of anyone who trusts in this kind of power. But when Jesus throws a royal banquet, it's not about using people. It's not about taking from them. This is a banquet about a provision that never runs dry. Jesus keeps on giving He keeps on providing. And it's in this provision that we finally recognize him as king. Now this is not just about bread. Because what Jesus promises in the gospel above all is to give himself to us. When we share in the Lord's table, we're reminded of this. We're invited to share in a part of the kingdom banquet in which the resurrected Lord keeps on giving himself to us. More than anything else, save baptism, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a meal that defines us as the people of God. It reminds us that we're committed to a kingdom that gives sacrificially rather than takes. In fact, as disciples, we're also servants. We're the table waiters at the kingdom of God, distributing what only Jesus can give. We don't gather at this table to take just what what comes to us, but also to share what we've been given. A few years ago, I attended a minister's retreat in which a, a disgruntled pastor spent the entire session dominating with his concerns. He was quite burned out. And I can remember his bitterness when he concluded that when St. Paul said, You should become all things for all men in order to win some to Christ. He said, that's the worst advice anyone ever gave because I'm tired. I have nothing else to give. Today's gospel reminds us, for for all of us, 
not just pastors, for all disciples, that what we have to offer is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. We may serve, but Jesus provides the food. In fact, as the Gospel of John puts it, Jesus is the food. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. Burnout comes quickly if all we have to offer other people is ourselves. But the task of Christian service is that we bring people to Jesus, the bread of life, which is offered in unending supply. A lot of us fail to get involved in Christian service because we think we have nothing to offer. Well, that's a good place to start. You're absolutely right about that. You have nothing to offer. But if you have Jesus Christ, then you can offer Jesus because Jesus offers himself. And Jesus really expects nothing more from us than that we share him, not our own cleverness, not our own wit, not our own talent and resource, because surely that will lead to burnout and ultimately will not satisfy their real needs. What we have to offer the world is the unending supply of the bread of heaven. Jesus keeps on giving of himself. Christians are defined by this table because it defines us in terms of the kingdom of God rather than in terms of the kingdoms of this world. This table is not the table of Caesar or Herod. This meal is one that is hosted, furnished, and continually given by Jesus Christ. And it speaks of a different kind of power, a different kind of kingdom. The power is not our power to lord it over people, to have our way, to impose our morals or values on other people. This is the power of God, and it is channeled through us so that we can respond graciously to the needs of our neighbor. This banquet is not a festival of debauchery and self-indulgence. It's a simple meal provided by the Lord to sustain us and nourish us. And so the highlight of this meal is not a vicious show of power and destruction that leads to abuse and finally to death. This is not the table of Herod. We're invited to recline at another table, the table of another king. And when we come to the Lord's table, we declare once again that it is this king that we follow and it is this kingdom to which we belong. We're no more committed to the destructive powers of the kingdoms of this world. And what we seek to share is the power of the cross. At this table, the resurrected Lord is our host, the one who's gone through the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf is now offering himself as the, as the bread of new life, feeding and nourishing us as the good shepherd. We need to be reminded that around this table we are not the rich and the powerful. Around this table we commit ourselves to a kingdom of compassion and peace because Jesus invites us to this table as members of his family. He prepares a table for us In the presence of our enemies, our cups run over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord 
forever. Amen.